With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Clara Jeffrey. I'm editor-in-chief of Mother Jones Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all our other programs possible, and we hope that, that you guys and others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. Today, I'm joined by Brian Stelter, CNN's chief media correspondent and author of the best-selling new book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Since the start of Trump's candidacy back in 2005, the symbiotic relationship between him and Fox News has been one of the most defining aspects of his rise to power. Together, they've broken previously accepted cultural and political norms and upended the truth of what truth means in America. Through painstaking investigative work and countless interviews, I mean, really just so many interviews, Brian documents how Fox and Friends, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and the whole gang on the network willfully spread Trump's lies, smear his enemies, and give his base an echo chamber. As one producer tells Brian and Hoax, we really don't believe all this stuff. We just tell other people to believe it. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour. There's been a lot of breaking media news in the past day. Uh, And if you're watching along with us, please put any questions in the text chat on YouTube or comments on Facebook, and we'll incorporate them later in the program. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. Thank you. How are are you and and yours doing? I'm here in New York where I can actually see the sun. So how how are you doing? Well, I, you know, I think we're all kind of having a little bit of existential dread at these uh, apocalypse now skies, but, you know, hanging in there as best we can. Yeah. If it's not one thing, it's the next. If it's one, it's not one disaster, it's another disaster. How many days are left in 2020, I guess, is the big question. I mean, can't come, can't end <laughs> soon enough, I think. You say that hoax essentially is about the foxification of Trump and the Trumpification of Fox. Who leads this dance, the president or the network? I've had to try to reckon with this question because it's a it's a uh, complicated one and it's hard to know where Trump ends and where Fox begins and vice versa. But I think it is largely uh, Fox driven, meaning Fox sets the agenda. um, Fox comes up with the day's narrative or the day's talking points and the president reacts to that. And there are hundreds of examples of him reacting to what he sees on Fox and Friends in the morning or freaking out about something he hears on a newscast, or cheering for something that Sean Hannity says at night. Uh, and those are mostly visible on his Twitter feed, right? A lot of this is out in the public record. Um, but in addition to that, I had many sources at Fox talk to me about the network's influence behind the scenes as well, what, what they hear internally about Trump's obsession with the network. Some people are proud of it, but many other people are horrified by it. And uh, even top executives at Fox said to me in confidence, we wish he'd watch less TV. We, we wish he would turn the channel, which is, a, which is a, a, a wild thing to hear someone say. I mean, I think all of us are way too much have seen how it tweets things out, as you say. But I think what was really interesting about your book is that it's the much broader parts of his agenda that are being set by Fox. And, you know, you, you you're seem pretty lit on fire by the 
his reaction to COVID and how that was shaped by Fox. Can you say a little bit more about that? Right. Well, I mean, that is why the book is called Hoax. Uh, it would have been named Wingmen. We had talked about Sean Hannity and others as Fox's wingmen, uh, as Trump's wingmen. I'm going to probably mix them up a couple more times tonight. Uh, you know, the, the idea that he has all these wingmen on Fox. But when the pandemic broke everything, upended everything, and Trump used the word hoax once and Sean Hannity used the word once, you know, it was pretty clear this is the the, the most uh, haunting example yet of how the president's unreality and Fox's unreality has life and death consequences. Um, I am glad that hoax came out a couple of weeks before Bob Woodward's book. Um, we both have these one word titles. Uh, his is a rage, mine is hoax. They, they do make for a great pairing, and I'm not saying that as a sales pitch, but I think what Woodward has done is what we've, what we've heard about today is we've heard this new information from Trump himself from inside the White House. When you pair that with what Fox was saying at the time and what he was hearing from Fox, you get a really clear understanding of why the country was so uh, misled, why there was so much uh, downplaying of the disease in February and March. Partly Trump's fault, partly Fox's fault. Obviously, there's other, other blame to go around, mayors and governors, et cetera. But Trump had the biggest platform on, in the country, and Fox had the biggest platform on cable. And now that we, we have these clips of Trump talking early February about the disease in a much more serious way than he was talking on Fox, you know, Claire, I think we need to hear from people at Fox about this. Um, Sean Hannity and others who were on the phone with Trump being misled in front of millions of viewers. That's interesting because, you know, the central revelation of Woodward's book that came out today was that, you know, in, in latest February, Trump was taking it very seriously, knew how deadly it was, knew that it was aerosolized, you know, knew all the things that he would deny for months to come or downplay for months to come, all the things that go into mask wearing and sheltering in place. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I mean, imagine that you'd have to really study Woodward's book and probably even you have not had the chance to do that yet, but... Would your supposition be that he kind of started there and was talked into a more treacherous place by Fox vis-a-vis -vis, um, COVID response? Or right. is, is it just that he can't kind of, you know, keep something in his head for very long? Right. Well, part of it is that every day is a new show. Every day is a new episode. And he programs it. It seems, it seems to program it that way. Certainly Fox programs his presidency that way. Uh, the only narratives that stay for more than a day are the Russia hoax and these other lies about uh, about news. Um, you know, but I quote Trump in the in the very beginning, the epigraph of the book saying, and this is about COVID, it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. That was March 10th when there were other other there were thousands of people sick already in Washington State, in California, in New York. Um, and he was in denial about that publicly. So you're right. There, I think there are still some unanswered questions of um, did he change his tune in public, privately to match what he was saying publicly or not? Um, either way, what we know is that February was a lost month, that Trump was behind the curve in, in a way that was dangerous, and that Fox was behind the curve in a way that was dangerous. And uh, I'm grateful to Simon Schuster that I was able to rip up the book and rewrite the first uh, 25, 30 pages rewrite the last, four, add 40 more pages at the end to capture this, because it is sadly the best example of how this Fox-Trump feedback loop can have dangerous consequences. Do you imagine that uh, when, you, when you kind of contemplate um, that shift in his rhetoric, yeah. that it's about him wanting to look good 
or mm. a shifting idea of reality. He's saying now that he wants to be the best salesman. He didn't want people to panic, that this was about um, controlling public sentiment in that way that, you know, so there wouldn't be, I don't know, run on supermarkets more than there was. Um, but that doesn't really square with your reporting on his, on his demeanor about COVID issues and, and other issues, what his sort of central concerns were vis-a-vis perception of him. Right. I've been thinking about this today. I think it's quite possible that Trump is taking in this information from O'Brien and other officials. He's being told how dangerous this disease is. He's being told it's much worse than the flu. He's being told that it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it spreads uh, in the air. And then he also decides to focus on, uh, on the post-impeachment purge and decides to instead play to his base and make uh, his folks feel better by firing individuals that testified against him uh, in the Ukraine scheme and by uh, you know, cheering on Roger Stone. You know, that was what mid-February was about. It's what we thought the mid-February was about. It was about this post-impeachment revenge tour. It was about bringing back the band together, bringing Hope Hicks back from Fox Corporation back to the White House, uh, you know, Rick Grinnell uh, over to, to, to the intel agencies. That's what was publicly happening in February. Um, he was also holding public events, by the way, you know, uh, even though he'd been told of the danger of the disease. All of that, uh, that timeline, it was damning in, in February and March, but it's so much more damning now, six months later and 190,000 lives later. Um, when I reproduced the Fox Trump timeline for February and March, there are quotes that were obviously embarrassing at the time. You know, pe- people saying, now's the best time to fly. And, um, you know, the media is all media hysteria. Like We knew that was foolish in March, but it sounds even worse now in retrospect. You know, by the way, I'm here at CNN in New York. I'm in my office where I rarely am these days because of the pandemic. And the lights have turned off because nobody's in the building. And so the automatic light sensors have decided that I'm in the dark. I mean, what a metaphor. You've got your, your issues in the sky there. And, uh, you know, here at CNN, I come into the office and I, I typically see only two people when I come in. Um, most of our anchors are here doing their programs instead of working from home. But, you know, we don't interact with anybody. We go into our robotic camera controlled rooms. We talk to the camera and that's it. Um, and it's been six months. And, uh, the president, meanwhile, is holding rallies, acting like there is no virus, not having social distancing, not having any of those protections. Um, it's, it's a really sad example of two Americas. So this gets us to another question of, that kind of bubbled up in, in media Twitter today, which is <laughs> people were very angry that Bob Woodward knew this back in February right. and did not report it. And there was similar criticism on a lesser scale about Mike Schmidt's book, things that weren't really revealed or at least fully kind of articulated until he he wrote his book. What do you think the journalistic ethics are about knowing things and especially life and death issues and keeping them from the public for so long? I'm still chewing on this, so I'm going to give you only a partial answer. Um, But I, I think Woodward's defense is notable. He just shared it with the Associated Press. He said, yeah, I had these quotes from, from Trump in February, but I didn't know how real they were. I didn't know if they checked out. I didn't know if he was exaggerating. I wanted to know if he was really told this by his aides. And it wasn't until May, he says, that he had confidence in the information. Uh, by that point, he said his goal was just to get this book out as fast as possible. So uh, putting myself into Woodward's head for a moment, as someone who, who finished hoax in mid-June 
and then had to have that you know too long two month wait, which actually was incredibly fast. Thank you, the publisher, for printing so so quickly. Um, what can seem like a short amount of time, right, uh, can also feel like a very long amount of time. So if Woodward is working on this over the summer and he knows it's going to come out in September, I'm sure that in his mind that feels like a really fast turnaround and a, a absolutely a, a responsible thing to do. But I can understand why the folks on the outside are looking at this saying, um, if he knew in February, why didn't he tell us by March? That, I think, presupposes, though, would anything have changed? Would there have been a consequence? And I don't know if there would have been. Do you think there would have been a consequence if these quotes had come out, let's say, in May? Let's, let's take May as a fair middle ground here. Would there have been a consequence for Trump? I don't know if there I, I, I think there wouldn't have been, but I, I, I'm happy to be, be wrong. Yeah, I think it's impossible to know, but notably yeah. that would be right when states were deciding to open up, as we now know, too quickly. And there was the sort of mm. rush to appease the sort of anti-mask folks and, you know, the demonstrators in Michigan. So, you know, interesting. Uh, sadly, interesting. we don't have a time machine, but it, it could have. I, I suppose I am more personally disturbed by what Trump was saying publicly at that time um, in February, in March. Uh, contradicting health officials, you know, showing up at events without any protection or social distancing, um, almost gleefully rejecting the best practices and advice given out by his government. Uh, and that was all in front of our eyes. Um, so I, I guess count me down as a skeptic that knowing what he was saying privately would have changed minds or would have made a big difference. But like I said, I'm, I, you know, we're only a few hours into the story I kind of want to reserve judgment um, and hear more from Woodward and hear more. I also think, by the way, we need to hear. So we've we've heard these quotes from Trump. What about these White House aides? Will the Democratic-led House call them? Will, will the Democratic-led House pursue this further? I think that's an open question. Will Jim Mattis repeat his quotes on camera? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I think if, if, if you know, I, I, write in, I write in hoax about my naivete in January of 2017, believing in Reince Priebus and Sean Spicer. Spicer, who I thought was a, um, a relatively straight shooter, who would be one of those, um, you know, one of those adults in the room. Uh, and I just, I thought that because I knew him personally. And uh, I, had, I had the same belief about Reince Priebus. And one by one, every individual in the Trump years disappoints you. And you say to someone like Hope Hicks, or you say to someone like Sean, why didn't you stop him when he called us the enemy? That Why didn't you stop him? And what they say, they have these BS answers, right? They say, well, you're not the president. I'm not the president. He's the president. Yeah, but you're hurt. You're, it's hurting him. You're letting him hurt himself as well as the country. And you get these mealy mouth answers. Um, and I don't know if it's any different for the, for the rest of the anonymous folks who are only being quoted secondhand, who, who don't seem to want to speak in their own voices. So let, let's let's uh, talk about Fox and that dynamic. It seems like a yeah. central premise that in the book is that there was a, a paradigm shift within Fox in 2016, 2016, 2017, where they went from being, you know, a, let's put it nicely, super feisty partisan operation to sort of full-blown <laughs> disinformation enterprise. Was there a sort of aha moment for you when you realized that there had been that kind of switch well, first of all, I, I bet that you slightly disagree with my portrayal of the first 20 years of Fox News, 
where I say it was conservative, but not usually conspiratorial. And and I would also add to that, look, Glenn Beck and others were pretty uh, outrageous and extreme and conspiratorial in the pre-Trump years. So I, I don't mean to totally gloss over some of the, um, the, the, the nuttiness that was airing on Fox pre-Trump. But I, I do see a distinction between those years and the Trump years, partly because Roger Ailes was in charge, partly because nobody was as addicted to Fox as Trump is now, meaning, you know, Bush wasn't hanging on every word Fox said, and partly because there weren't these per- perverse incentive structures to appeal to Trump in the way that there are now. So because Bush wasn't hanging on every word that Bill O'Reilly said, O'Reilly wasn't kind of trying to program his show for George W. Bush. And, and certainly Keith Olbermann on MSNBC wasn't programming for Barack Obama. That's uh, one of the key differences now in, in the de-evolution de- of Fox. But, you know, you anticipated my critique, which is, um, <laughs> yes. you know, that, that they, they were indulging in sort of, you know, vituperative white grievance politics all throughout the Obama era. They did kind of carry a lot of water and misinformation about WMDs. So... To your mind, the, the switch is that the politicians were more directly plugged into the, you know, almost hourly messaging from Fox hosts? I think that is one of the big differences. I think another difference is that Ailes wasn't there to, in some ways, control the content. Look, we're going to talk about Ailes and we're going to, you know, we're going to acknowledge that he was a, a, a sexual predator and a person who abused his power. Um, he did, however rein in his talent when necessary. For example, uh, on the subject of birtherism. Ailes was a birther, but didn't let his talent go full birther. And, you know, if we were in a similar dynamic now, and in some cases we are, uh, you know, when, we're going after Kamala, when, they're, when they're going after Kamala Harris, there's no one to, 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 kind, of, to kind of try to, try to uh, restrain the talent. It doesn't seem like there's anyone who's, who's capable of doing that. I think that's the difference. I think another difference is what's the, the right wing has changed, what the audience wants has changed. Um, there's even less interest in news than there than there might have been 10 years ago. And there are fewer people at Fox providing that news. Do you think that there is or has been an entity uh, uh, kind of equal to Fox on the left in, in willingness to warp the truth as well as, you know, at least some measure of market share? I don't see anything like it. I think this is an example of asymmetric lying in the way that Trump lies a whole lot more than Joe Biden or any other Democratic politician. Frankly, Trump lies a lot more than most Republican politicians. Like there's asymmetric lying going on. Uh, and, and that's true in, in media as well. Um, when Fox and Friends starts its, its, its show every morning with violence in U.S. cities, um, sometimes running old video of old riots and old fires, there's, there's no outlet on the left running months-old Trump gaffes <laughs> and months-old Trump lies every day and leading their hours with, with those examples and hitting the same beat on the same drum every day. Uh, there's, there's actually not, it doesn't seem to be there's an audience for that performance, right? There is an audience for that performance on the right. There doesn't seem to be an audience for that performance on the left or in the middle or anywhere else on that spectrum. Yeah, or if there is, it's sort of in confined to Facebook groups and so forth, but it doesn't seem to really penetrate media organizations. It's not profitable. Yeah, it's not profitable. It's not, it's not a big commercial business. No one's going to make a big commercial business out of it. And, uh, and, and that does make a huge difference. And one of the reasons I ask is because in 2009, you know, Obama called out Fox for being a misinformation machine, um, pretty poignantly for Obama in particular. 
But many in the press, and I, and I think to some extent yourself included, kind of frame that as like, it's an attack from a president on the media. Is this the same as presidents attacking the media? How does that look in retrospect, that moment? And, and I think the sort of way that, that those who would critique Fox yeah. aggressively then were, were often, particularly the political press, seen as either not savvy or partisan in their critique. Right. This was, I was just looking at my story about this from 2009. I wrote, um, attacking the news media is a time-honored White House tactic, but to an unusual degree, the Obama administration has narrowed its sights to one specific outlet, Fox News Channel, calling it part of the political opposition. Um, and, you know, I described this relationship with Rupert and how he dealt with David Axelrod. I said that both sides see benefits in this feud, which was definitely true at the time. I think in 2009, that story holds up because we had never seen a president like Trump come along and try to destroy outlets he didn't like. So uh, at the time, this was an intense volley. Now, in retrospect, what the Obama aides were saying about Fox was... Let's pick a term. It was so gentle. It was so uh, so polite <laughs> compared to what uh, the way that Trump talks about uh, channels and outlets he doesn't like. So, you know, I, I guess we'd have to draw a line, right? Like pre twenty sixteen, post twenty sixteen, pre twenty sixteen, it was disturbing to a lot of White House reporters and DC professionals to see um, Fox being singled out by the administration. In retrospect, that was um, that was uh, the calm before the storm, and I think what. And I think what you're getting at also is why why is there this defense of Fox when it is a political operation as well as a news operation? Um, it is a outlet that produces journalism, but is really hostile to journalism. Um, I, I had people at Fox describe it to me as a place that's about anti-journalism, right? And, and, and an anchor there said to me, "You you can produce journalism here, but it what are the incentives? You know what are, what are the what are the what are the motivations to do that?" It's easier and more rewarded just to talk about the news and to defend Trump and attack Biden. But, but I think in 2009, 2010, I think in the Obama years, to some degree even now, there is this desire to say we are united and attack on one is an attack on all. And I think that's some of what was going on in the Obama years in the defense of Fox to say you cannot pick off one of us from the herd. Aggressive coverage is a good thing. Uh, news outlets that are a pain in your, your side, that's, that's, that's your problem, not ours, you know. Um, I think those are understandable uh, um, instincts, but in the li in light of what has happened, <laughs> and in light of Sean Hannity saying every night journalism's dead, the media's fake, don't trust any of the media mob, they hate you, they hate us. That rhetoric is so so deeply damaging, and if you don't watch every night, you don't get a sense of how poisonous it is and how powerful it is. So Trump is, I think. Uh we would all agree, an extremely lazy president. Um, but he's put in time studying cable news and Fox in particular. What were his insights? 2011, he gets a weekly call-in show on Fox and Friends. And I think that was ultimately more important to his election victory than The Apprentice. Because The Apprentice did set him up as a businessman and portrayed him uh, to viewers as a really successful billionaire businessman, contrary to what we know. Um, but Fox and Friends taught him about the GOP, taught him about what Fox's priorities were, which are, you know, there is a distinction between GOP priorities and Fox priorities, um, but they often overlap. It taught him about what Fox viewers want, how they react, how, what they crave, what they like to hear. You know, I, I think of it as um, almost a job interview. 
uh, I don't think I called it that in the book, but you call in once a week, you get asked a bunch of questions about the stories Fox is really hot on, and you have to figure out ways to answer. And uh, in retrospect, it was a bit of a job interview. It introduced him to Fox and to GOP voters in a way that other candidates didn't have. Um, yes, Ben Carson, a couple others were Fox commentators, so they, they had similar connections, but he was calling in in this way that made him seem so important. He was only on the fo- he was usually on the phone, even though he was like, you know, a few blocks away in Trump Tower and he could have walked over. He's on the phone. He seems busy and important and hard to reach, powerful, mysterious. You know, I don't think any of this was that intentional by Trump. He just you know, he wanted publicity and airtime. But the result of it is very clear. And, of course, once he enters the race, uh, Ailes said you can't, can't call in anymore. The segment's over. But then he starts to call in as a, as a candidate. Right now he's a newsmaker. Now the segments are actually – now he's, now he's news. And he's calling in even more often. Um, and by then he knows what Fox wants. I, I, there was this great moment uh, on the day that Trump entered the race where Greg Gutfeld, one of these Fox you know, comedian types, he says, wow, Trump's speech – he did the fives rundown. He did our show's rundown. He did all the topics that we do every day. And, and that was the early sign right there that, he, that Trump was the Fox News candidate and, and would become the Fox News president. I might jump up and down to turn the lights on. Is that okay? I'm going to like wave my arms wildly and see if I can turn the sensors on. Okay. This is going to be, it's going to look kind of kooky, but uh, sorry, go ahead. It's not working anyway. At that point, when he was starting to call into Fox and Friends, had Fox itself already become such an insular audience base? Like you, you refer to it as people who see it as the home team. They don't watch right. other television news. They don't really get their news much from anything else, maybe some talk radio. So in this, how did Trump graft himself onto that audience? Like which came first? The cult of Trump or the cult of Fox? Well, I think the Fox base was there first. Yeah, the Fox base is there first, and then it becomes the Trump base with with, with enormous amounts of overlap and, and not much difference in between. But I would say there are different kinds of Fox viewers in the same way there are different kinds of Trump rally goers. I remember going to one of Trump's rallies in North Carolina in 2018 and noticing the difference between the, huge, you know, the, the true uh, loyalists who are in the front row. They are singing his songs you know, they are they are rock star groupies. And then you've got folks in the back sitting up in the bleachers who might leave early, kind of skeptical. They want to see the show, but they're not they're not they're not going to get they're not going to they're not going to go in a Trump boat parade. Right. And uh, I think there is a distinction in Fox as well. Different kinds of viewers, how loyal they are both to Fox and to Trump. Some who are holding their nose with regards to the hateful tweets and the racist rhetoric. Others who are absolutely all in, who are watching Fox all day. And, and those are the viewers who, you know, when a news anchor like Shep Smith, who left, or some of the news anchors who are still there, when those news anchors um, point out Trump's lies or call out the indecency, even gently, then they start sending hate mail and hate tweets to the Fox anchors. You know, so you get that, that really loyal base. Those are the front row uh, folks at the rallies. And I think this is true. You're right. It's not just about Fox. It's a broader phenomenon in television. I think a lot of the change we've seen in television news uh, from reporting to talking about the news, talking about the reporting, I, I believe that's largely been driven by the internet and by smartphones. Because when you have every headline on your phone, you have access to every bit of information at all times. I think it forces television producers to think differently and, and produce differently and uh, not produce a headline news hour, but instead to um, 
go deep on a few stories, especially politics, because there's an obsession with politics and the country is so uh, polarized. Um, so I, I view it as a reaction to the Internet and to phones. You know, and this is a, the famous example of CNN is the missing airline in 2014 and CNN's choice to go all in almost 24 seven covering the missing airliner. To me, in retrospect, that was really a reaction to these market forces that's moved all the news onto the Internet and made TV have to, to, to seek a different model. But, you know, there are outlets that are trying a kind of more old fashioned headline uh, service. Um, news Nation is a, a primetime show that just launched on WGN America on cable. It's a you know three. It's a multi-hour uh, newscast. The whole pitch for this newscast is just the news, no opinion. So that's going to be an interesting test in the marketplace to see uh, how many folks want that versus a more point of view driven, more um, uh, commentator driven point of view uh, you know, version. You know, I've been covering Fox 16 years. So I started in 2004 with a blog called TV Newser, where I was just obsessively tracking CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and uh, and the cable news wars. It was an innocent time <laughs> compared to what we're, what we're experiencing now, uh, where, um, you know, these networks were, um, they were powerful. Fox's ratings were high, but not as high as they are now. And, and the content wasn't, I think, as conspiratorial. Uh, so I've been starting covering Fox since then. And in the Trump years, what was starting to be different to me in my conversations with sources, um, you know, lower level sources, higher level sources, anchors, production assistants, everyone in between, was this growing sense of alarm about the network's content, this growing sense of um, the people saying things like uh, the network has gone off the rails. Um, I knew when I joined it had a conservative bent, but we were much more reality based uh, 10 years ago or five years ago than we are now. Um, and this was clear enough to me by uh, mid-2018 into 2019 that there was a bigger story here. Um, you know, I, I think what, ultimately what compelled me to write the book was this sense of um, all of these sources inside Fox saying, this place, this, something's gone wrong. We've become way too Trumpy. Uh, the incentives are all wrong. They are to misinform instead of inform. And uh, I know some people would say they, they don't have sympathy for those uh, staffers. They should leave. And indeed, some have. Uh, I quote a researcher in the book named Sean Graff, who reached out to me when he was still working at Fox in New York. He spoke to me on the record, which is certainly a risk for his job. And he said Fox's allegiance to President Trump is a puts our democracy at risk. Um, he ultimately did leave uh, and, and now he's working for another network. Um, but others stay. They think they can make the content better and they can make the place better. And that dynamic is something that I think is really interesting about, you know, uh, can Fox be improved? Can the content be improved? Can the quality be improved so that um, people aren't being fed resentment news and grievance politics all the time? Now, of course, the counter to that, and I'll go back to you, Claire, I think you're back up, is that's what the audience wants. The audience doesn't want news. It wants pro-Trump propaganda. And the ratings show that. Viewers turn the channel when the news comes on and they turn it back to Fox when the opinion comes on. They do say that. Um, is there any evidence that these folks who are staying there, particularly now that some of the sort of biggest names like Shep Smith, who were in that more sort of straight news category. Yeah. I mean, there was a really interesting example last week where a very good reporter on national security issues um, yeah. confirmed a big story about Trump, you know, calling the troops losers and slackers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it may have made it on the air in other programs, but it mostly made it on the air because Pete Buttigieg mentioned it when he appeared um, in an opinion show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even though her reporting confirmed that story, if they're not airing it, 
what difference does it make? I think CNN might have talked about her reporting more than Fox talked about her reporting. And that's at the heart of the problem. There's nobody in a position of leadership at Fox who says, our reporter got a great tip. She confirmed a really important piece of information. This is the priority now. She's going to be on at three and at five and at seven and at nine. Instead, these shows are like fiefdoms. And the producers and the stars, they want to please this Trump-loving audience. It is why, and I hate to say this word, but this, this word came up repeatedly in the reporting from sources at Fox who talk about it like a cult. In the same way that you've got critics of Trump who say Trump supports like a cult. Uh, you have folks at Fox who feel that that word applies. And so in that environment, Jennifer Griffin's reporting is something to be feared as opposed to uh, reported and shared and spread. It is something to be rejected. And that is largely what happened at Fox. Uh, Trump's denial was taken more seriously, um, 20,000 misleading statements later, than, than their own reporters' uh, information. And that is incredibly demoralizing for the reporters inside Fox. It is why some of them leave, like Shep Smith and a number of others have, have fled. Others say they look for other jobs and they can't really find them. And that's a tough situation when you don't feel like you have options. Um, but this is a dynamic that I, I fear will only get more intense in the final um, weeks of the campaign. When they have left, have they been replaced by journalists who have standards and are trying to report the news? Or is that just sort of smoothed over and made way for more opinion or like less vibrant right. reporting? Well, let's take 3 p.m. as an example. 3 p.m. Eastern time, noon Pacific is the Shep Smith's time slot. Uh, Shep was like a, the sorest of sore thumbs, uh, pointing out uh, lies and misinformation that were spreading on Fox. So he would try to correct Tucker Carlson. He would try to correct Sean Hannity to limited avail because a lot of viewers didn't like that and didn't like him. But when he left last October, he was replaced by Bill Hemmer. Bill is, as one of the sources in Hoax says, he's a don't rock the boat type of newsman. Well, if any time in history of our, of our, of our living history required some boat rocking, this is the time to rock the boat, especially when you're on Fox and you have the president's ear and you're influencing the Trump audience. Um, but no, he's a, a don't rock the boat guy. Uh, he's not doing the kind of fact checks that uh, Shep was doing. So in that way, the 3 p.m. hour, the noon hour, Pacific time, became Trumpier. It, it's another example of that move toward these perverse incentives, which are not to report the news fearlessly, but to fear the news. And for, say, a Chris Wallace or Brent Baer, they, they, you, you report that they view it much like GOP senators who say they don't read the tweets. They like claim they don't watch the other shows. They just – how does that square with just the – existing at that network and, and in the larger media ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Chris Wallace is the exception to the rule. There's a couple other exceptions to the rule, but the rule is very strict and very clear. And uh, the fact that there are a couple exceptions just, just supports it further. Um, you know, he, he has a lot of autonomy. He's on once a week, Sunday morning on Fox broadcast and then re-aired on Fox news. So he's a man with an Island and nobody else really has that Island. Um, in fact, anchors at Fox said to me things like, you know, we don't have any power. We don't feel we have power to fact check Trump. Um, we, we, we feel like uh, we're being squeezed out by propaganda. This is um, a subject of immense frustration there because, you know, you, you and I may disagree on this, but I think there should be a vibrant, healthy ecosystem for right leaning news. Like, I think there should be absolutely you know, beat reporters who are covering stories from a conservative perspective. Um, we need more reporting in the world, not less. But that's not what Fox is doing. 
right? What they're doing is they're shouting down the rest of the news. Uh, you've got Greg Gutfeld on air tonight saying um, this story, this bombshell from Bob Woodward, is not a bombshell, it's a booger, right? So he's just resorting to childish insults and name-calling and silly rhetoric, right? Um, in some ways, people like Hannity, they're not newsmen, they're stop-the-newsmen. So the, the, the model that I'm saying we should have, we should have a healthy, diverse media ecosystem, lots of reporting from lots of points of views. We're not getting that reporting from Fox. We're getting more and more propaganda. So you, you say in the book that after Ailes left and then later died, yeah. that, you know, Rupert Murdoch stepped in for a while to, to run the show. But then after a while, when these, you know, former deputies of Ailes kind of took over things, Murdoch themselves stepped back, the hosts gained the upper hand, and essentially the inmates are running the asylum. Like nobody can tell Hannity what to do or not do. He he tapes the show for impeachment night, which is, you know, remarkable. (laughs) And I'm curious what your analysis of why the Murdochs either can't or won't or don't step in. Is there just nothing in it for them? It's minting them money. So what do they care? That is essentially the explanation I was given several times. Uh, People would say it a little more gingerly. They would say things like, well, Lachlan Murdoch, he's a soccer dad at heart. He doesn't care that much about Fox News. You know, he's not a religious Fox News viewer. Um, He cares about the business. He cares about making deals. He wants to he wants to grow the empire and go off and buy startups. That's great, Lachlan. Go do that. Make sure someone's watching the channel 24 hours a day so they don't hurt the viewers. Right. Go do what you got to do. Make sure the channel's okay first. He was trying to do a deal for a service called Tubi in February and March. That was his priority when the pandemic was, you know, when, when this disease was silently spreading in the U.S. and we didn't know it because we didn't have tests. And, uh, you know, they canceled Rupert Murdoch's birthday party in, in March because they knew it wasn't a good idea. So they were taking these kind of precautionary measures personally, um, but not making sure that Sean Hannity didn't call it a hoax on, t- on TV. Now, of course, he said hoax. He meant the Democrats are committing a hoax. They're, they're too obsessed with the virus, right? They're politicizing this. They're trying to hurt Trump. That was what he said. So they were talking about it on Fox like it was a political crisis, when in fact it was a medical crisis. And uh, there hasn't been accountability for that. And there never will be. The truth is there never will be at Fox. Um, the, the Murdochs are never going to come out and, and express regret or something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it is about that profit machine. It is about that um, focus on the bottom line uh, instead of the content and the editorial. That, that came through loud and clear in my interviews. And, and I'll tell you the way it comes through, the way it's presented as a positive, right? Because there is there's a little bit of a spin to this that is interesting. The, the pro-Murdoch spin, just for what it's worth, is we give our stars autonomy. We give our talent freedom. They are free. They have freedom of speech. You know, they, 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 it is their show, right? They, they have control. No, that's, we love hearing that. I'm a TV host. I I got autonomy. I'm happy to have autonomy. Um, The difference is when I'm going to go on the air and say something that I know is um, uh, that, you know, that might ruffle feathers. (laughs) I have my producer read it first, right? I I have my wife read it first. I I might have an executive read it first, not because they're going to censor it. Not going to, not going to, not going to, not going to soften it. Oftentimes, the feedback is to, to make it even stronger and, and really, really tell the truth, right? But that doesn't seem to happen at Fox. Uh, there doesn't seem that those checks and balances don't seem to exist. You say there's essentially no standards and practices department right. at Fox, which for people who don't know um, as much as, as you about TV news is essentially, you know, editors, lawyers, and fact checkers right. designed to to be a team to make things bulletproof for legal reasons as well as just ethics, so how do they avoid getting sued? That's interesting. In the Seth Rich case, there, there is litigation ongoing. Uh, Fox has won some of those. 
um, uh, uh, battles in court. I think they've, I think they've lost others. Uh, Rolling Stone had a great piece on this recently that I'd recommend on, on the Seth Rich case. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. There was a case in Washington State uh, that attempted to litigate on the coronavirus uh, pandemic downplaying and was swiftly thrown out. Um, I think that's a credit to Fox's lawyers more than anything else, uh, high-priced lawyers. Um, that's an interesting question. I, I haven't thought that full, uh, through fully. Um, the, you know, the lack of checks and balances and standards and practices is a big deal, though. And I tried to really focus on that in hoax because I don't think it's well known outside uh, Fox or outside media world circles. When I have a story, it's going to go you know, a sensitive story or something anonymously sourced. It's going to go through a process in the same way that you, you do with your staff and Mother Jones. At Fox, if you want to have a process, you can, but it's not enforced. It's not a, it's not a company-wide thing. Um, on Brett Baer's show, there is a little bit of a process, but that's just his choice um, to have that. There's not that same top-down sort of determination to have vetting and quality control. Are folks like you who care deeply about this listened to by the brass? I think there has been a lot of individual soul-searching including by the head of the network, Jeff Zucker, who, who came out after 2016 and said, we ran too many of those rallies live, unfiltered, and unedited. Um, and in the future, we won't do that. And uh, this, is, this is typical Zucker. For, for those who've read about him or, or heard about him or, or, or know him, he then added, by the way, I'm the only network boss to say that. Fox will never say it, <laughs> which I just think is, uh, I appreciate that aside by, by the boss. Uh, but, but he is right. You know, we did run too many of those rallies. Uh, live. Um, they were spectacles. They were entertaining spectacles. They were also offensive in many cases. And one of the justifications at the time was that uh, other candidates weren't doing it. You know, Trump was accessible. That was one of the big arguments in 2016. He was accessible. He was also, I might add, thoroughly challenged, you know, fact-checked to an inch of his life, uh, challenged here, there, and everywhere. I went back and read these transcripts from 2016. The coverage, the news coverage of Trump was much tougher than people might recall. And the transcripts are up on CNN.com. But in an interesting way, I think even that, that skeptical, critical coverage boomeranged, right? Because Trump's out there telling you the media is not your friend. The media is out to get you and hurt your family. And then you got the media challenging Trump. And in, in a way, this stuff boomerangs. I think it probably still does today, Right. Um, in, in the way that uh, he's, he's making people choose or he's, he's challenging his supporters to choose, me or the lion media, right? Me or those scum. Um, it's, uh, I think, going to take us a long time post-Trump to reckon with the consequences of all that hateful media rhetoric. It's like a poison that's just slowly working its way through the body and you can't be fully measured yet. Um, and to me, that's a much greater issue than... Uh, showing the rallies in 2016. But um, you asked an interesting uh, ha second half to your question, which is, are people like me listened to, right? Do, do, do I have a voice? Uh, do people like me have a voice at CNN? And, and I feel the answer is absolutely yes. You know, one of the, you know, one of the strong things about CNN is there is a real clear sense of leadership. We know what our mission is. We know what the big story is. You know, we are focusing on the pandemic in a way that other Fox is not, for example. And when I have concerns about even something like a banner, when I send an email, uh, I can sometimes see something change, uh, you know, five minutes later. Um, that's, I don't do that every day. I'm, you know, <laughs> I've got other things to do. But what, what my point is, when I, when I speak up, I do feel like I'm heard. And I think others are as well. And that makes the product stronger, right? That's, that's what we need, that kind of collaborative environment. It makes the product stronger. 
There seems to be less of this now, but I, I still wonder why political um, operatives of either party are put on analyst panels um, along with journalists and, and other experts. I mean, we know what they're going to say. Like, what's what's the point? Like, I don't need to, you know, I know what Jeffrey Lord or Kelly McEnany or Donna Brazil is going to say. Like, what 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 is what is the point of that? I think that's a fair criticism. and I know I've been guilty of it myself in the past. Uh, and I agree with you. There's less of it now, partly because of the soul searching we're talking about. And, and, and frankly, constructive criticism helps a lot and is heard and is taken seriously. Um, I think, thankfully, we're moving away from this food fight approach uh, you know, on multiple channels. There's less of this left, right, you guys go fight for five minutes sort of format, partly because the stakes are so high and the lies are so suffocating. Um, but I, I know in, in, dare I say, in defense of Kaylee McEnany, in defense of Kaylee McEnany, when I would have her on as a panelist in 2016, I do think that she was able to reflect some of what Trump world was thinking, some of how stories were perceived by Trump supporters. And I do see there's value in that. But I think the, the greater value would be just to go interview supporters, right? Uh, go and do the reporting, go and do the field work. And while we're at it, while we're interviewing Trump supporters, Let's make sure we interview lots of Democrats and well, and let's make sure we interview lots of non-voters because I think that's the even more interesting part of the story. You know, if I could replace half the uh, Trump voter in a diner stories with stories about non-voters, then I think we're going to get somewhere interesting. So we all saw that very uh, Mussolini, Kimberly Guilfoyle speech at the GOP convention. Um, you know, since you're talking to a largely Californian audience, she has a special fascination for us. Oh, and yeah, she yes, she does. used to be married to Governor Gavin Newsom. What, what do you think... Her tenure at Fox tells us about Fox. I mean, it obviously tells us something about the revolving door to the Trump world. But you you had some really uh, interesting observations about her role at the network, um, particularly in the aftermath of Ailes's um, scandal. Right. Look, day one, Trump comes down the escalator and she says, it was like the Lego movie. The theme was everything is awesome. I really felt so excited. I felt richer just listening to him. Like she was on board the Trump train before it left the station. Uh, at the same time, I had a Fox insider who knows Kimberly well say to me, she's an avatar. If MSNBC offered her a better gig with more money, she'd be a raging liberal. Now, she claims she's always been a registered Republican. But I think there's that dynamic in, in cable news, especially at Fox, where uh, it feels like these folks are only cheering for the side they're cheering on uh, for, 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 for financial reasons or personal uh, fame and, and, and popularity reasons. Um, but she clearly saw... Uh, she, she made a series of calculations. One was to be pro-Trump. Another was to be pro-Ales in the summer of 2016 when Ailes was sued by Gretchen Carlson. And that was a terrible bet that she made. Um, I think it's pretty clear what the calculus was. If she was the head of Team Roger, she'd get rewarded with a promotion, a new show, and her time slot of her own. She wouldn't be stuck on some panel with four other people. She'd have her own show. She'd be a bigger star. Um, she went around Fox saying things like, uh, Dana Prino, she's dead. She won't, she won't support uh, Roger Ailes. You can have her seat on the five. Like She went around trying to make deals with people uh, in, in that way. Um, and that, you know, again, that speaks to that kind of professional uh, aspiration, that attempt to get ahead. Clearly, it, it backfired. Uh, once Ailes was forced out, her star faded fast. Uh, Fox waited a while to, uh, to, 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 until her contract ran out for her, uh, to have her leave, but eventually had her leave. And, uh, and now, you know, now she's on YouTube, right, doing Trump 2020 web videos that almost no one watches. Um, I think you know, these videos, they deserve a little bit of attention because they, they can kind of show us what the, what the goal, what the, 
the um, attempt is by the Trump campaign to create their own media, but it's not not working very well. And I had a Fox insider say to me, you know, when Don Jr. is on Fox, she sometimes comes with him, and we all kind of think it's a little desperate, you know, that she wants to get back in the building. So I guess the, the point here is there's no love lost uh, between Kimberly Guilfoyle and the folks at Fox. Are Fox hosts starting to play footsie with QAnon? They are. And that's one of the scariest things that's happened in recent recent weeks and recent months. Jesse Waters, for example, was on the air. You know, he basically went on and said, you know, yeah, you know, QAnon, they, they've had some crazy stuff. You know, he was referring to Pizzagate, for example. But he said, uh, Q can do some crazy stuff with the pizza stuff and the Wayfair stuff. But they've also uncovered a lot of great stuff when it comes to Epstein and when it comes to the deep state. <sighs> now, this happened on Saturday night and I requested comment from Fox right away. And Fox didn't say anything all day Sunday. Then finally, Sunday night, uh, they put out a statement from Jesse where he said, um, I don't support, I don't believe in QAnon. My comment should not be mistaken for giving credence to this fringe platform. Well, when you're talking about on Fox, it's not a fringe platform anymore. When President Trump is retweeting QAnon memes, it is not a fringe platform anymore. That's the definition of mainstream. And this will be, again, another test for Fox leadership. Can they, will they um, try to... Uh, Try to sort of make sure that this kind of toxicity doesn't spread on their own airwaves. What happens to Fox if Trump loses? Um, the business model at the moment seems completely tied into him now. What do you think? I think Fox is bigger than Trump at this point. And yes, he can go off and try to launch a channel. He can go off and have a Twitter fight with somebody if he, he loses re-election. Um, but I think Fox is bigger than Trump at this point. And it's better to be, for Fox, the business model, is better to be anti-Democrat than pro-Trump. It's, it's, it's better to be the anti-Biden channel, have something you're against, than have to be for Trump. Like, I mean, think about today, right? You've got the Atlantic article, and now you have these, these quotes from, the, from, from Bob Woodward's book, just a deluge of bad news for the president. And you have to go on and put on a happy face and tell everybody everything's great and that Trump's going to win re-election. Like, that's not an easy job. So simply from a practical standpoint, uh, being the anti-Biden channel, sometimes a, a, maybe a better, that's um, a, a more comfortable position for Fox to be in. I mean, I can see that, but it seems like Trump's fans have, you know, his core fans are so devoted to him in a way that they may, they may not abandon Fox. But I guess I well won't won't the name. I mean, we're now we're in kind of hypothetical territory. What 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 comes into what, what does December look like? Okay, what does February look like? But uh, maybe it looks like this. Biden wins, and the narrative is the deep state won. The deep state took down our guy, right? One of the things about Fox is they, they the primetime stars, they distill really complicated, nuanced things into these talking points, into these slogans that are then, you know, they also, they become the way we all talk about these stories, for better or for worse. Hoax and deep state, you know. Um, you know, I think it, it's quite likely it'll be just be a, a deep state plot. This was a deep state plot. It'll be interesting to see how many people accept the results of the election and believe the results of the election. Um, what I don't think will happen is I don't think people wake up and say, Trump who? I don't think there's going to be that sort of um, dismissal of him, running away from him. If anything, I think the, the core Fox viewer will hold Trump more tightly, right, and turn to Trump Jr. as the future. All networks, particularly CNN and, and MSNBC, I guess, have, you know, had to roll with the pandemic. And it's forced some big changes to the way that the shows are produced, um, yeah. booked. And, and some of these seem decidedly in the studio and almost all the guests in New York. Do you think 
Is there appetite at the networks for this to remain once there's a vaccine? Uh, for, for what? For the working from home studios, that sort of thing? I think also just interviewing people more broadly across the country. Right, 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 right. Well, I, I certainly hope so. And I do think this will be a lasting impact. You know, I am frustrated today by the relative lack of national news coverage of the fires. I know there is some great coverage uh, from national outlets. I'm curious to look at the nightly newscast, uh, 630 Eastern, and see what the order of stories was and, uh, and how, how high the fires ranked. Um, you know, and I think that uh, one, one fringe, one, one silver lining of this crisis has been that it is easier to pipe into anybody anywhere. Uh, you, can, you can get folks at home. They can come out on the webcam. You know, they're, they're able to join from anywhere. I do think that's going to have a lasting impact on TV coverage and hopefully provide more diversity and more uh, perspective in the coverage. So it's not that you have to get to a studio and you have to be in front of a camera with, with makeup and lights on, uh, but that we can reach out to more experts that are in the field. I noticed an announcement earlier this week by CNN. One of our correspondents, Diane Gallagher, who's, who's been in, in Washington, she's been in Atlanta. She's now going to be our first ever Charlotte, North Carolina correspondent. So she'll be there with her, her, her husband already is in Charlotte. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure she's from the Carolinas. Now she'll be back. She'll be there. She will be Charlotte-based. And so I, you could envision a model where CNN correspondents who used to be in 10 cities will soon be in 20 cities, right? Because they'll be able to be more spread out and they'll be able to work from home or work from, you know, a kind of a small office setup or a small bureau setup. I think that would be a great benefit and a great improvement uh, so that we can reflect more of what's going on across the country. We just, um, this summer, you know, we're the kind of family, I have two kids, we are the kind of family that was going to go house hunting in March pre-pandemic. We literally had an appointment to go try to try to go buy a house in the suburbs, and then we had to cancel it because of, the, because of the, the, the virus. But we did go ahead and, and, and reschedule and, and go out and, and buy a farmhouse. Uh, and the first question I asked was about Wi-Fi, how strong my Wi-Fi connection could be. Uh, I wanted to make sure I could get the home studio set up that I needed to get for CNN. Uh, my wife's on TV. We did the same thing for her. You know, I, I, it's going to be interesting how that's going to be a calculation for folks um, in the future in a way that it wasn't before. And by the way, you know, these television programs, doing it from home, doing it from different locations. I have producers now who are dialing in from multiple states to produce my show on Sunday. You know, I do think they're also... Um, it also gives them a different perspective when they're producing the news, when they're thinking about who to book. So that there could be those those silver linings to this ominously dark cloud. So uh, I just want to thank thank Brian Stelter again, CNN's chief media correspondent and author of the new book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox. I'm holding it up and you can't see me. So Oh, I'll hold it up. I'll hold it up from my darkened office, okay? I'll hold it up there. <laughs> I love seeing what stands out to you in the book, what what paragraphs or pages stand out, what surprises you, what horrifies you. Uh, let me know. And for everybody watching, uh, if you have questions for me that we didn't answer today, my email address is bstelter at gmail.com, just first initial uh, last name at gmail.com. Most of all, thank you for your interest and, uh, and thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. 
go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.